Good morning. Now, before we begin, I do want to take a chance to say thank you uh, to Ian and Josh and to you all for giving me this opportunity to speak this morning. Uh, The preaching from this lectern and that lectern uh, have been really important in my growth in the knowledge and love of God over the past 24 years or so. So it is such a joy for that to come full circle uh, that I'm able to stand here and open the very word that I've been taught to love with you all this morning. So to begin, do you make New Year's resolutions? My New Year's Eves tend to go pretty much the same way every year. I'm normally on beach mission in a caravan park in Wollongong. Liz Fife's bush band have just put on a bush dance for everyone, and then we watch the 9pm fireworks from the beach. But then, there's another three hours until midnight, and some of our team have kids, so we try not to make too much noise. Uh, And so, just in those three hours, I often find myself thinking back over the past 12 months, considering the good and the bad, and thinking about what I might want to do differently next year. These resolutions are really profound, but New Year's resolutions can be quite helpful. So, for example, Jonathan Edwards was an 18th century preacher, and he wrote out a list of 70 resolutions that he would read over every week. Some of them are quite inspiring, like this one, number six, resolve to live with all my might while I do live. Number 14, resolved never to do anything out of revenge. Or number 17, resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Great. Some are a little dark, like number nine, resolved to think much on all occasions of my own dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. Dark, but potentially wise. Uh, And some, I think, are even doable, like number 36, resolved never to speak evil of any, except I have some particular good cause. (laughs) I dare say Jonathan Edwards had a higher bar for a particular good cause uh, than I do. But these are all great things to resolve, and you can find the full list online if you like. It's good and a helpfully challenging list. But... Today is January 15th, so I don't know about you, but my New Year's resolutions aren't looking great. You see, New Year's resolutions become this sort of paradox, because every year on December 31st, we declare that we're not as we should be, uh, and that we must change. So we resolve to start a new diet, or to save more money, or spend more time with our family, or whatever it is. But every year, by January 15th, if not January 2nd, we realise that we're not capable of the change that we need. Despite the good sentiment behind them, I think we all know that New Year's resolutions are not a reliable path to lasting change. So then how can we change? How can we be transformed, not just on the outside and not just temporarily? How can we experience deep, lasting change? Edwards himself admits that this power cannot come from ourselves. As the opening note to his resolution says, being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions, so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. So the good news that we've seen over these last couple of weeks is that transformation is possible, but not by a decision to try harder, but from an encounter with the living Jesus. This is the third sermon in a series of four, looking at stories from the Gospels of people's lives being transformed by meeting Jesus. 
And today we're looking at John chapter 20 to see Mary Magdalene's encounter with the resurrected Jesus on that first Easter Sunday. And in particular, I want us to see the radical transformation from misery to mission that Mary undergoes in John chapter 20 between verses 11 and 18. Because in verse 11, Mary is outside Jesus' tomb, distraught and weeping. But in verse 18, we read that Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. In those eight verses, we see how Mary Magdalene is taken out of her misery by meeting Jesus and sent on an exciting new mission. Then we'll look at the means by which we too can encounter Jesus and be transformed. So Mary Magdalene, misery, meeting Jesus, mission, means. That's five M's, or six if you count Mary Magdalene as two. <laughs> but they will be pretty quick. Uh, before we go any further, however, I am under no illusion that my words are capable of bringing about any sort of lasting transformation. I suspect they're even less powerful than New Year's resolutions. But as we'll see, Jesus is capable of bringing about that transformation through these words. So please pray with me as I ask that he does just that this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you that Jesus is alive. Thank you that transformation is possible through him. I do pray now that as I speak and as we read your word, that you will be helping us to meet Jesus and be transformed. Amen. Now, as I said, what we're trying to understand today is how Mary goes from misery to mission from uh, verse 11 to verse 18 of John chapter 20. But in order to understand the misery she's in in verse 11, we need to understand a little bit about her background. Now, despite what Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code may have told you, we actually don't know that much about Mary Magdalene. Her name, Magdala, uh, Magdalene, probably means she came from Magdala, which is a small fishing town on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, maybe 10 k's from Jesus' home base at Capernaum. But other than the Eastern narrative and her name, she only appears once in the whole Bible, in Luke chapter 8, uh, where we read, after this... Jesus travelled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Uh, Joanna, the wife of Chuza, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. So we learn two things about Mary here. Firstly, she was possessed by seven demons and had those demons cast out, almost certainly by Jesus. And secondly, she became a patron of sorts for Jesus and the disciples. She gave them of her own money to support the mission of Jesus. So John chapter 20 is not the first life-changing encounter that Mary has with Jesus. She had met him and been saved from demon possession already. And she believed in him enough to support him financially and to follow him. She was committed to the cause. In fact, Matthew, Mark and John all record that she was one of the few still at the cross when Jesus died. And so it is no wonder that she is devastated by his death. She wasn't just a fan. Jesus had already transformed her life. But then she watched the one who had reoriented her life the one who had saved her, whom she'd followed and supported and trusted, die. And to make things worse, his body is missing. 
Look with me at John chapter 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Now, what I'm not going to do now is spend a bunch of time trying to figure out where, how all of the four gospel accounts of the resurrection fit together. Uh, I think they, prob- they do, um, but it's just not a very interesting way of spending a few minutes. Uh, so I highly recommend that if you have some time uh, to go home and read the four accounts for yourself and see how you can piece them together. I don't think there's a much better use for a Sunday than meditating on the resurrection. But what I do want to do this morning is look particularly intentionally uh, at the story that John tells and look at the way that he intentionally tells it. Um, and so we see that Mary comes to the tomb. She sees the stone is removed. And immediately she comes to a fairly sensible but devastating and wrong conclusion about what must have taken place. So she goes and tells two of the disciples. In verse 2, she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So the disciple who Jesus loved is the author of the Gospel of John, almost certainly John, one of Jesus' disciples. And there is one detail in this story that he thinks it is very important that we all notice. In verse 3, so Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. It must be nice to be able to write an inspired book of the Bible and include the fact that you run, won a running race. Uh, the other disciple bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. So John, as I mentioned, thinks it's very important that we know that he got to the tomb first. However, he waits on the outside and looks in. Peter, true to nature, has no regard for proper tomb etiquette and goes straight in. Once they both get into the tomb, they see something incredible. The grave clothes are still there, but the body is gone. And this instantly discredits two possible explanations for the empty tomb. Firstly, the body has not been stolen. Stealing a three-day-old body is gross enough, so it's very unlikely that whoever did it would have wanted less layers between them and the body. Also, we read in John chapter 19 that Uh, Nicodemus has applied 75 pounds of these spices to Jesus' body. So the most valuable thing in that tomb was these grave clothes in which the spices would have been wrapped. It does not seem likely that Jesus' body has been stolen. And secondly, and perhaps more importantly, this is a different kind of resurrection to the resurrection of Lazarus in John chapter 11. Lazarus comes out of the tomb still wearing his grave clothes. And Jesus literally says he needs to be unbound. But Jesus' resurrection is different. He didn't just rise. He defeated death so thoroughly, not even the grave clothes could bind him. The faith cloth being in its place seems to indicate that Jesus had folded up the face covering and put it aside as he, unlike Lazarus, would never have use of it again. And so what is the result of what the disciples witness? Read with me from verse 8. 
Finally, the other disciple, who, just in case you forgot, had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. So the disciples believe that Jesus is alive. They've seen the evidence, and it is the most rational explanation for what they've seen. But they don't fully understand the implications of that fact. Indeed, it's important for all of us to remember that belief in the resurrection of Jesus' body is necessary but not sufficient for Christians. That Jesus rose from the dead is a simple historical fact. But the implications of the resurrection must be worked out from the Bible. And that understanding of the resurrection is exactly what Jesus will give his disciples through Mary Magdalene, as we're about to see. So now, John the author returns his focus to Mary Magdalene, who is still completely devastated. Look with me at verses 11 to 13. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. Now, Mary sees two angels, and this is a bit of interactive Bible trivia. What is the one thing that angels almost always seem to say in the Bible? Don't be afraid. Very good, very good. But here, Mary is so distressed that their first response is, why are you crying? It almost seems like she's too upset by Jesus' death and missing body to remember that she's supposed to be afraid of these angels. So she explains to them why she's upset, and then she turns around and comes face to face with her resurrected saviour, who she mistakes for the gardener. Uh, From verse 14... At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realise that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Now, do you see the irony in Jesus' questions? If he was the gardener, you could take those questions at face value. He's genuinely asking why she's crying, and who she's looking for. But on the lips of Jesus, those questions are a little bit pointed. Perhaps she shouldn't be crying if she really believed the man she was looking for, and she probably shouldn't be looking for him in a tomb. Now, she must have turned back, perhaps to look at the angels, but all the confusion is cleared up with a single word. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned around and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Mary realises it's true. Jesus is the good shepherd who knows his sheep by name and they recognise his voice. Mary realises as she hears her saviour speak that the hope that she didn't dare hope, the truth that seemed too good to be true, was true. Her Lord and teacher Jesus the Messiah was alive. And Jesus isn't just alive. He has a mission for Mary. Jesus appoints Mary as the first post-resurrection evangelist, which is an incredible honour for anyone, let alone a woman in a culture where women's testimony wasn't considered trustworthy. But notice the good news 
what the good news that he wants her to share is. Uh, In verse 17, Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now, this might not seem like good news. After all, Jesus is saying that he's going away. So there's no wonder that Mary might be tempted to hold on to him. But there are two beautiful gospel gems in this statement that I want to unpack. Firstly, when Jesus says that he is ascending to his father, he does not mean he's moving back to his folks' place to put his feet up. Jesus has declared as he died on the cross that his atoning work was finished. The penalty for our sin had been paid for. And we can now be reconciled to God. So his earthly work of atonement was finished. And Jesus now returns to heaven. But there he begins what theologians call his heavenly session, taking his rightful place at God's right hand. And we see throughout the Bible some hints of what Jesus is doing at God's right hand. In John 14, he tells us that he's preparing a place for his disciples. Romans 8 and Hebrews 7 tell us he is now praying to the Father for us, mentioning our names before his heavenly Father. And as Jesus says in John 16, because he ascends into heaven, he sends the Holy Spirit who will guide us into all truth. So the first gospel gem is that Jesus is working for us with his Father right now. But the second gospel gem is that the cross worked. Jesus went to the cross because he knew that we human beings were separated from God our Father by sin, that every human being has rejected God's rule in their lives and deserves death. But Jesus died to take that punishment that we all deserve. And now resurrected, he sends Mary out to preach the good news that it worked. Those who trust in Christ's death are adopted into his family. And therefore, Jesus can say in verse 17 that the disciples are his brothers, despite the fact that they abandoned and denied him. And he can send Mary to tell his brothers that he is ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. It's as if he's saying, I'm ascending to my father who is now your father, to my God who is now your God. If you're following the SOAP reading plan that we do here, this week in John 5, we were shown a beautiful picture of Jesus' relationship with his father. He's joyfully obedient and fully confident in his father's love for him. We see humble reliance and bold requests. We see deep love and respect and intimacy. And because of the cross and the resurrection, that relationship with the Father can now be ours. Those who trust in Jesus' death for them can relate to God as their Father. And Mary faithfully fulfills this mission given to her by Jesus and tells the disciples what she saw and heard. Jesus is alive and he has good news of adoption and resurrection. So what changes between the broken devastated Mary of verse 11 and the courageous, faithful evangelist of verse 18. She meets the resurrected Jesus. And that is what makes all the difference. Because Jesus is alive, all that she had done for him was not in vain. 
All the time and money she had given to him, all the trust she had placed on him was not in vain. In fact, it is of eternal significance because she had done all that for a man who defeated death and will live eternally. And because of this life-changing encounter with the resurrected Jesus, she now knows that she has been adopted into the family of the God who raises the dead. And that is life-changing. Mary might well fear ridicule from the disciples. But on the other hand, her dad raises the dead. She might be worried that the people who tried to kill Jesus might well try and kill her. But on the other hand, her dad raises the dead. Now, my earthly dad is here, um, and I quite like him for lots of different reasons, um, but in particular because I have great confidence that if something goes wrong with my car, he can fix it. So this is my car. Um, it's a 2002 Toyota Corolla, uh, and it's not exactly in mint condition. Um, and occasionally, things go a little bit wrong. So a couple months ago, one of the ignition coils in my car died. Please don't ask me what an ignition coil is. That's just what the NRMA guy told me. All I knew was that my car was shuddering a lot and not accelerating very quickly. Turns out you, your car is supposed to run on all its cylinders, not just three of them. Um, so I do did what I assume all men do when they have a problem with their car. I called my dad. Um, uh, and he said that I could borrow his car while I got mine fixed. So I drove very carefully and slowly back to my parents. But when I got there, it turns out he had four ignition coils for my car that he bought years ago, last time I had this problem. I, to this day, don't remember this ever happening before, but he tells me it did, and therefore he had the spare coils. And not only that, for good measure, he also had some spare spark plugs, just in case they were the problem. Now, I don't stress when I have car troubles because I have a dad who knows a bit about cars, or maybe he Googles it, uh, but I like to think he doesn't have to. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. Uh, but despite what my dad might be trying to do with our old run-down beach house, my earthly dad cannot raise the dead. I suspect there are even limitations to how often he can resurrect my car, though I'd rather not find out. But my heavenly father can raise the dead. And if he can change Jesus from being dead to alive, then he can transform me to be more like Jesus. He can make me less afraid to share the gospel. Because if God can raise the dead, he can certainly save my work colleagues. I can be confident that my dad does raise the dead because I am convinced that Jesus walked out of that tomb. And I trust that my earthly dad would not say no, that he, doesn't, that he won't help me with my car, because he loves me and he enjoys fixing cars. I can trust that the God who gave his son for me loves me even more and enjoys even more making people holy than my dad enjoys making cars work. And in the same way that my dad would almost certainly refuse to help me put diesel in my Toyota Corolla, I can trust that the only reason my heavenly father would refuse my requests is if they weren't good for me. And just as it is easy and fun to tell the story of my earthly dad's mechanical skills, 
It should be easy and fun and exciting to tell the even better story of my heavenly father's resurrection skills. So as we head into another year and consider New Year's resolutions, I'm sure January 15th is not too late, I want to urge you to first look back to 2022 and ask yourself whether you're living in misery or on mission. Are you living more like Jesus is still in the grave or are you living as if your dad raises the dead? Is there some pattern of sin that you've been living with for ages that you just don't think God can change? Is there a friend who you just don't believe could ever come to know Christ? If so, then you need a refreshed confidence that your dad raises the dead. Now, for some of you here, that might mean that you need to seriously look into the evidence for Jesus' resurrection for the first time to discover if God really did raise the dead 2,000 years ago. Because if Jesus didn't walk out of that tomb, all this talk about encountering Jesus is simply hot air. The Simply Christianity course in February is a great way to do that. Or maybe, if you haven't read one of the gospel accounts before, you could ask a Christian friend or one of the staff here to do that with you. Or maybe you're the Christian who shouldn't be waiting for your non-Christian friend to ask you. There are so many people, including in this room, who have had a life-changing encounter with Jesus by simply reading through one of the gospel accounts. But if you do believe that Jesus has risen from the dead, but you're just struggling to live in that truth, then what you need is what Mary Magdalene found. I want to urge you to resolve to encounter Jesus and live in the good news of his resurrection this year. And the way that you do that is simple yet profound. For 2,000 years, Christians have encountered Jesus in his word and amongst his people. Now, I do understand that reading the Bible and going to church are well-trodden ground for sermon applications. So what I'm trying to do today is give you a fresh vision for why we do these things. That it is through these ordinary means that Jesus meets us in an extraordinary way. Is that what you think you're doing when you're reading the Bible? Whether you're doing so or something else, are you trying to learn some facts about God or some good lessons for you to apply today? Or are you trying to get to know the living Christ who said when he was on earth that the whole Bible was about him and you allowing that encounter with him through his word to transform you? And is that how you think about coming to church, to spending time with what we call the body of Christ? Is it a habit? A good social activity, a chance to sing some songs and hear an all right sermon? Or do you think that you're here to have an encounter with Christ, to leave knowing Jesus a little more intimately and loving him a little more? And perhaps more importantly, are you here to help your brothers and sisters have that same encounter? So these may be ordinary means, but they have been given to us by God that we might encounter his son through them. So my prayer is that through these ordinary means in January 2024, we might all look back on 2023 as a year marked by these ordinary yet extraordinary encounters with Jesus. And that might lead us to a fresh confidence that we are the children of the God who raises the dead.
because it is that hope that transforms lives. It is that hope that leads to lasting change. And finally, I have the great joy of seeing that hope transform and encourage teenagers in this church, in youth group, in D teams, to be actively spreading the gospel, running Bible studies at school, and reading the Bible with their non-Christian friends. As an adult, that is terrifying without the minefield of social dynamics that they call high school. But on the other hand, their dad raises the dead. Let me pray that we would all be so convinced. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can call you Father. And thank you that you are the God who raises the dead. Thank you that because Jesus walked out of that tomb, we can trust that nothing is impossible for you. We can know that you can transform us to make us more like Christ. And you can save our lost friends, family and colleagues. I pray this year that we would meet you through your word, through prayer, through your people, and that through those encounters, we would have an ever-growing confidence in your power to raise the dead. We pray all this trusting in what Jesus has done for us. Amen.